the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Getting a lesson from the Shadow Chancellor on how to balance the books is like getting a lesson from Dracula on how to look after a blood bank. Ed Balls. A steady as she goes budget. What kind of ship does he think he's on? The Titanic? The Marie Celeste? Welcome to EMQs from Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Hello and welcome to EMQ's Ex-Minister's Questions, where every week you get the chance to grill us. But before we get to our listeners' questions, my first question for George, you were saying something to be interesting about the forthcoming Boris Johnson book. So my question is, tell more. Mm, well, I have discovered the provisional title of the Boris Johnson memoirs, I think. These are memoirs that are set to come out, I think, this autumn, which is going to be a total nightmare for the Tory leadership as they plan their election campaign, because they're going to have serialisation in the Daily Mail. And, you know, obviously, Sunak resigned on Johnson. And I can imagine that uh, Johnson wants to get his revenge. Anyway, the title apparently is going to be called Unleashed. Boris Unleashed. Boris Unleashed. (laughs) You know. Goodness me. Unleash off the lead. Ready to bite? I mean, I don't remember him particularly being leashed or on the lead when he was Prime Minister. That's... You're only on a lead to stop you biting people. If you're unleashed, you can go and... Yeah. <laughs> so he'll be sitting in that nice uh, Oxfordshire mansion of his at the moment, writing out these memoirs. He's definitely writing them because I know he's periodically messaging people, asking, is this what happened? Or he has a uh, touching regard for trying to get the facts right. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? If you think about Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, they could cause that kind of storm at the Conservative Party conference. I'm not sure that for Keir Starmer, there's anybody who can rival that in terms of their ability to um, be unleashed and cause a problem. Look, clearly, if, if Tony Blair or Gordon Brown from the past suddenly decided to launch a scathing attack on Keir Starmer at the conference, that would be like a really big deal. But if Jeremy Corbyn or John McDonald produce their memoirs. I mean, they'd I mean, be grist to the Starmer Mill, wouldn't they? They, they won't care. But, and all um, that, as for the Tony Blair, I, th- I thought it's all the uh, people who work at the Tony Blair Institute are going to be all the special advisors, Ed. Well, I don't know. That's what I read. <laughs> Where no. are the Brownites? They're still in the Shadow Cabinet. Yeah, actually, Dougie Alexander's coming back as well Yeah, in Scotland if he gets elected. Anyway, look, look, I have to say, it feels a bit old-fashioned, Blairites and Brownites. Mm. It, was, it was years ago. Mm. The world's moved on. You've got to look forward. Forward, not back. I think somebody said that. Yes. <laughs> he did say forward, not back. Mr. Anthony Linton Blair. He did. Anyway, first up, we've really started something with our conversation last week about women in politics. Remember, we were asking, why is it that the women leaders of the world tend to be conservatives? And we said a bit tongue-in-cheek, you know, send us uh, your PhD thesis if you've done one on this. And uh, thank you, Grace, for sending us a Has PhD. Has Grace sent her PhD? Thank you, I've Grace. I've not seen it yet. I want to read this well, thesis. It's uh, quite long and you can definitely read it. Thank you, Grace. And we had this follow-up question from Victoria. Thank you for the really interesting discussion about women party leaders. It led me to wonder what your thoughts are on how to encourage more women into politics at a time when many MPs seem to be choosing not to stand for re-election because of the impact on being an MP on their personal life, in particular the personal attacks they face on them and their families. How can women be encouraged to go into politics and does positive discrimination ever work? If so, can women MPs being selected in this way ever escape that stigma or does the spectre of the Daily Mail's Blair's Babes haunt women candidates to this day? Look, there's no doubt that that Blair's Babes picture from 1997, Tony Blair surrounded by those scores of new women MPs, looks a bit old-fashioned 
Including Yvette, right? Including Yvette. But it was a massive and revolutionary moment. And it changed not just Labour politics, but also the House of Commons. Both parties have competed. And, you know, we are close to, not there yet, 50% representation of women in the House of Commons. And the answer to Victoria's question is it would not have happened without the positive discrimination of all women shortlists. And simply having a rule to say you have to have a woman on the shortlist was never going to make the difference because there was so much history of men and women choosing men to be members of parliament. I think we're kind of like beyond that now. I don't feel as though in open selections, women are discriminated against in the way that they were historically. And all women shortlists made the difference. And it was unpopular in some places, but I would look back and say it was a brilliant reform. The thing which is the worry, Victoria, isn't stigma or those photos. I think the worry actually is what's happened to the expenses regime, the way in which MPs are supported to do their jobs since the late 2000s. Terrible expenses crisis, awful what happened, hugely damaging, shocking. We should talk about that some other time. But one thing which happened as a result of those reforms is we kind of went back to an old model where the truth is Parliament supports people to leave their families in their constituencies and travel to London for two or three days a week in a boarding house or in a small flat in order to do their job. And that is very challenging for young women with young children. It's very expensive to do what many of us did and move our whole families up and down uh, every week. We got the train every week for you know a decade with our children. But if you're told you have to leave your kids in your constituency half the week, it's very hard. And that is a factor alongside the misogyny and abuse that you talk about. And I think at some point we have to stand back and say, is the way in which we support members of parliament in the House of Commons making it harder now for young women to be members of parliament? Well, I think that's that's a very, very interesting point. And, you know, the expensive scandal did expose wrongdoing and indeed some people went to prison. But it also swept away a system that did enable people to have their families with them during the week while they were in parliament. And go up to their constituencies and live there as well. So that is a, an interesting insight. I, I mean, I, Cameron, when he was leader of the opposition, we had the A-list system, which was to promote women. I think when I became a Tory MP, there were more Tory MPs called Matthew, I think it was, than women MPs. And that situation has dramatically changed. And of course, we've had female prime ministers in the last few years as well. So I don't think you need to move back to discrimination in the positive sense of all women shortlists. But I think you constantly have to make an effort when candidate selection to push for fresh faces, unusual faces, people who haven't necessarily thought about a career in politics. And interestingly, some of the safe seat selections under the Tories at the moment are selecting some very strong female candidates who we're going to hear about in the future. None of this is really an answer to the question we posed, which is, why is it that among the female leaders, they don't tend to be from the left. So maybe we've obviously started something and uh, it'd be good to get further thoughts on that. But hopefully that answers this question from Victoria. Thanks, Victoria. Next up, we have a question on fuel duty from John. Hi, George and Ed. In 2000, fuel duties made up 7% of HMRC revenue. By 2019, that had fallen to only 4%. Why is it so politically difficult to raise the fuel duty escalator? Yeah, so I'm going to blame someone called Edward Balls for this. When I became Chancellor in 2010, I tried to get off the uh, essentially stuck position that Labour had been on since the fuel tanker dispute back in around 2000. For those who don't remember, the Tony Blair government suffered a real wobble 
when there was a blockade of various refineries and the country ran out of petrol. And after that, the Blair Brown governments never raised fuel duty. So I come in and I think, well, it's ridiculous. We can't raise fuel duty as it goes up with inflation. And I propose an increase. And then the shadow chancellor teams up with Tory backbenchers and basically defeats me. And as a result, I have to freeze fuel duty or indeed cut fuel duty initially. And there was a very effective Tory MP who did it for the best of reasons, Robert Halfon, who was in this uh, Faustian pact with you, Ed. And after that, no Tory chancellor has ever dared raise fuel duty either. And the result is material. Yes, of course, you could say it's helped motorists, but it has led to a serious shortfall in tax revenues from this source. And we know how we've been discussed on this podcast many times, how it's really difficult to get the money in. But we're now about £60 billion short of money we otherwise would have had if the fuel duty escalator had continued to rise, according to the Institute of Fiscal Studies. And that today would mean around £14, £15 billion extra money in the budget this year. And when we talk about all the pressures on public services or indeed all the things you'd like to do to cut other taxes, that would be very useful money to have. So j'accuse Edward Bowles. Look, there is no doubt that the scars from the fuel duty dispute back in 2000 run very deep. And you were clearly brave to try to raise... That's, by the way, code for stupid. (laughs) Brave to try and raise fuel duty in that way. And, you know, maybe Robert Halfon and I agreed that cutting income tax for the highest earners from 50 to 45p while raising petrol taxes by more than inflation on hard working No, you're just making families. up history. The, the tax was, cut on income tax happened a year later. Yeah, but, you know, it was... You're all, rewriting facts we all, we all knew what... We, you're we you're the enemy of the environment. Knew, yeah. We all knew what was coming. It is true that it's not happened for a long time. And actually, we mentioned it last week, there's going to be a, a debate as we move to electric cars about how we replace fuel duty entirely. I think the con of the last years has not been not raising fuel duty. That is a kind of decision for governments to make year by year. The fact that the government keeps putting into the public finance numbers that they are going to bring in these billions of pounds and then at the last minute not do so. Well, there's a temporary 5p cut in fuel duty that was introduced when the oil price really shot up after the Ukraine invasion. And it is absolutely nailed on for the budget that Jeremy Hunt is going to continue that temporary 5p reduction in fuel duty. I mean, if you want a dead cert for the budget, that's one. But what will happen is that the Office of Budget Responsibility figures for next year, the year after, the year after, and the year after that will include that extra 5 billion of revenue, even though we all know every year it then gets changed at the last minute. So, you know, it's a bit I think you're ducking your responsibility for this mess. What? (laughs) George, have the courage of convictions. If you want to raise taxes on... I did try. I was defeated by you. Anyway, let's now turn to a good question we've had from Patrick Maguire, who writes an excellent column in The Times every week. Hi, Ed. Hi, George. It's Patrick Maguire from The Times here. Love the podcast, though I am contractually obliged to say that others involving new Labour grandees and David Cameron's favourite strategists are available. But my question is about political columnists. Do they really matter? Are people on the inside really paying attention to what they write? And who were the columnists you would most dread or look forward to reading or briefing when you were in government? Well, first of all, Patrick, I mean, there may be other podcasts out there. I have no idea. But I can tell you, David Cameron's favourite strategist was me. So you're listening to the right podcast. It's a good question. I mean, I think columnists do matter. Politics is played, isn't it, at two levels, if you're doing the kind of jobs we used to do. On the one hand, you're trying to speak to millions of people 
on television and communicate to the general electorate. At the same time, you're playing a, a kind of inside a Westminster game, trying to shape the general news coverage and communicate to your own MPs. And the leading columnists of the leading newspapers are very important in that. Everyone reads them and you can talk about the death of newspapers, but nothing's replaced the very influential columnist that everyone has to read each week. And now they change over time, as obviously as people's careers develop. Back in my day, there's a particular type of columnist you know would be kind of right on the button of what was going on and would sort of give you a kind of summary each week. So someone like James Forsyth, who's actually now in number 10, Matthew Dancona used to write a column that was very influential. Andrew Rawnsley was always the way you found out what was going on in the Labour Party. There were some female columnists like uh, Janice Turner and Alice Thompson I used to like reading cause, uh, and Rachel Sylvester because they would give you a kind of different perspective. My favourite was Janan Ganesh who writes an excellent column in the FT. But the main reason... did you also write a biography of Yes, he wrote a biography of me. Oh, and that's God. why I'm picking him. Uh, I was bloody know. lucky in my biography, actually. <laughs> you know, it was, I, mean, I didn't, by the so way... He's the one you feared most, because when he turned on you, you knew you were in I trouble. Did, when, when someone said to me, there's a biography being written about you, I thought, oh my God, what are they going to uncover? And uh, when they said it was Janan Ganesh, I thought I had got a lucky break, because I knew I would get a very high-level erudite explanation of the way I had formed my political opinions and my West London childhood and, uh, you know, the modernisation of the Tory party. It's an, it, I suspect it's remained it now. I don't believe you can uh, buy a copy. Well, so Patrick asked us a really good question and I was thinking about this. And as you hinted at there, you have to sort of divide columnists into the different types and they all matter. Actually, they're very influential, but in different ways. So there is the oracle commentator who says, here is what they are doing and why. And sometimes they can be, you know, kind of critical, but they're kind of telling you what's going on. So for Tony Blair, Philip Stevens was a great oracle commentator on Marianne Seagart. Here's what's in their mind. Then you have the critic columnist, which is the person you know is going to be against them. Here's why they're wrong. So for Gordon Brown or Tony Blair, Trevor Kavanagh or Richard Littlejohn would have been always against them. Then you have the arbiter columnist, the one who sort of floats above crude politics, but judges issues issue by issue. So Hugo Young in The Guardian, or maybe Steve Richards, Jonathan Friedland in Guardian Independent would have been people who would give you a judgment. And then you have the insider columnist, the person who says, here's what's really going on behind the scenes. Patrick Jenkins or Tim Shipman, maybe Matthew Dancona, Bill Keegan, they were the sort of insider columnists. And what you don't want as a politician, you don't want the oracle columnist to be telling your opponent's story. You don't want the critics to be saying, you're rubbish. You don't want the arbiters to say, oh my God, this guy's a chump. And you don't want the insiders to say, actually, he's nowhere near as good as he looks and all of his colleagues agree. And I think Patrick is interesting on The Times because he plays, as lots of columnists do, different roles. So sometimes Patrick Maguire is an oracle commentator. Here's what's really going on in Keir Starmer's mind. He's not a hot critic, but he is definitely an arbiter. Sometimes he'll say they're getting it right, getting it wrong. And he gives you an inside view about what's happening, the insider, which is really interesting. So I, I think, think in different also, ways, they're very, very important. Yeah. And also, I think he's doing what, frankly, the newspapers aren't doing enough of at the moment which is he's telling us about the Labour Party. Okay, so we've had, you know, 13, 14 years of Tory governments. And so, you know, understandably, every time you pick up your Sunday Times, there's been the inside piece on what's going on in Downing Street. But frankly, what's going on in Downing Street is not arguably as important as what's going on in the leader That's of the opposition's right. office. And I think the newspapers should be switching more towards that. And the great thing is you don't know with Patrick, is this week going to be an oracle? 
Is it going to be an arbiter? Is it going to be an insider column? You're never quite sure. Anyway, apparently your biography by Janan Ganesh is remaindered on Amazon at £3.99. So if um, if you want to pick it up cheap, um, it's still available. Janan Ganesh actually now writes a very, very good column on mm. America, Britain and the world from, I think he's based in Washington. And so I like his column these days. Mm. Back in the old days, I thought it was a bit of a, well, I'm not sure I can say it. It's hagiography hag- is the word you're hag- looking for. <laughs> There's moments when my stammer gets offended. You can only, have, you can only have a hagiography if you've got a saint. Look- so if you're saying I'm a saint... We can end the uh, conversation. It looked like you paid him, is all I'm saying. And in return, he got his book, £3.99 on Amazon. We'll be back after the break. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. We've had a question from Nick. Uh, Nick asks us this. George was on my BA flight to Venice this summer. I actually said out loud, oh my goodness, that's George Osborne when I saw him at the gate. This got me into thinking, should we care about how our politicians fly around? Rishi Sunak's use of helicopters has been subject to criticism, but should we care? Well, first of all, Nick, you should have come up and said hello. I was actually heading off on my honeymoon with Thea when we flew to Venice for a couple of days. And so, so anybody on planes who sees you, it's fine to come and say hello. Well, they quite often do. These days, of course, no one, you know, largely unrecognised because no one can remember. I bet you're so are. relieved when they come towards you and they say hello. It's such a relief because it could have been so much worse. The British public are, in my experience, even when I was Chancellor, very, very polite. I mean, it would happen only once or twice a year. I promise you that people would be hostile. I mean, you could sometimes see people who wanted to avoid you and whatever, but normally people would just come up and be friendly and ask you questions. And whatever. It's also so unexpected. You know, I think on planes, people are always nice. But every now and then on trains, you know, you see people who look like they're going to be really, really aggressive and then they're lovely. And then every now and then when I was a cabinet minister or shadow chancellor, you'd be on a train and there'd be some very nice looking gentleman in his 70s in a three-piece tweed suit who'd come over to say hello. And you're thinking, oh, this is going to be a, you know, a friendly, kind of warm person. And they would just kind of totally lay into you mm. you are an absolute bastard I hate and you, and you think oh god how's this happened so you just learn never ever to know you never knew I was on a basketball. I was on a plane once, and this uh, man next to me started asking me questions about it, and uh, it turned out it was Nick Clegg's brother. <laughs> we are so <laughs> off topic here. Get anyway, back to, get back question, to this question. Yes, yeah, so I think Nick's got a good point. Well, he's asking about you know, is it? A, I guess you're asking, is it right for Sunak to fly around in helicopters and government jets? I think there's a kind of grey area, which is if you're obviously using these jets for campaigning, even if you're claiming they're government visits, particularly in an election year, you're going to come under some scrutiny. Or if getting the train would be faster than, than uh, getting the, the helicopter, which seems to be what we see. But I do think I, I think it's a bit hair shirt to say that British politicians, unlike the leaders of other countries, can't use government planes and like it used to I have to say irritate me a little bit. I would fly to some of these summits when I was uh, chancellor. And, you know, I'd arrive on the kind of scheduled EasyJet flight. And there alongside me would be the Greek finance minister's private jet, even though we're turning up to discuss bailing out Greece. And I thought actually Gordon Brown made a big mistake because there used to be jets and they were used all the time by 
Blair and uh, Thatcher and whatever before. But they got old and they needed to be replaced. Tony Blair knew that it's very difficult to do if you're prime minister, you're going to be criticised for spending money on jets. And uh, he, as a sort of parting gift, as he left, he commissioned some planes. And then Gordon Brown came in and said, I'm cancelling Blair Force One, which was uh, you know, a cheap headline in the Daily Mail. But he did get his comeuppance because he then would turn up at various summits as prime minister on kind of strange planes that the British government had had to lease from like the Rolling Stones or the LA Lakers and have the piss taken out of him. And I, I eventually worked out a way to replace these planes as chancellor which was basically to say they could also be used as troop carriers, which was you know a somewhat tenuous argument. And it took a few years to get them done, and they got all commissioned. I was rather pleased that I managed to solve this political puzzle. And unfortunately, they came into service about two weeks after I was fired, and the first person who got to use them was Theresa May. And you were back on EasyJet? I was back Until on EasyJet. Until you got all of your multiple jobs and ended up being able to pay for your own private charters around the world. I'm sure that's the case. Sadly, I, that is not the case. Of course it's not. He, George will still be on EasyJet or Ryanair to Venice when you see him um, yes, next. Yes, the Nick, evidence is that Nick saw me at the uh, BA gate. I have a really clear view about this. There is nothing wrong at all with governments having planes which they use for government purposes. I have to say, it's not clear that the countries which always have the fanciest planes are the countries which have the best governments. But um, let's put that to one side. But there's two things. One is, is taking that trip really, really going to be value for money rather than other forms of public transport? And I think the problem with Rishi Sunak is taking little helicopter flights within the UK, as opposed to as you were talking about on big international meetings. The second thing, though, is, is the plane full? You know, if you've got a government plane on which you're taking business leaders or the media to a big international summit and they're all paying their way, that's really good. And that's what you designed it for. What you've seen in recent years is a lot of these planes going empty because the government decides they don't want to take any media Mm. with them because, you know, they're under pressure and the business leaders don't want to go. And you end up with this massive plane with five people on it, really expensive. So I think it's what the plane's being used for and whether it's actually value for Mm. money, much more important than whether it's a government plane. Right? I don't think Gordon Brown was particularly bothered about a bit of teasing from the lobby because in the end, they were all on the LA Lakers plane as well, getting the food and paying their way. The secret, by the way, of all this is on the flight out, everyone's quite serious and getting ready to do their work, including the journalists and the civil servants. And on the way back, everyone gets completely pissed. And a golden rule of politics, as a senior politician, never forget that if you're at 35,000 feet and they've had a few drinks and you're enjoying yourselves in your pyjamas on the aeroplane or whatever, the next day, when it's on the front of the sun, the mirror or the Daily Mail, nobody will be thinking, oh, no, but that was up in the air somewhere. Did you ever, I think Alice Cabell did a briefing once in his first class pyjamas. Did you ever do a briefing in the pyjamas? I never went in. Actually, (laughs) that's not true. But I um, didn't wear the (laughs) pyjamas. He says, let's move on. Let's move on. Next up is Susan. She's got a voice note. Hi, Ed and George. This is Susan from North London. Really enjoyed Ed's short tutorial on the Nobel Prize economists. So my question is, who would be your favourite economist? Perhaps the one you've learnt most from or perhaps the one that's most relevant today. Mine was E.E. Schumacher, Small is Beautiful. Clearly, I am a child of the 70s. So... Favourite economists, that's a tough one. I mentioned Alan Kruger um, for his Nobel Prize winning work on minimum wages. He is a brilliant economist. Back in terms of really innovative economists, George Akerlof was the American economist who first did 
It was called the market for lemons. He sort of understood the way insurance markets and differences in information can lead to people being well or badly insured and kind of buying dodgy cars. Brilliant work. Joe Stiglitz did similar stuff. I worked very closely with Larry Summers before he became an American government person. And his method, which was never to be too focused on sort of one data set and one complex equation, but to always come at things and say, here's 15 different ways to ask the same question with different data and to try to see if all the answers point in the same direction. And that's the kind of academic research I like. But those are academic economists, some great economists I've worked with in government as well. Invidious to name any of them, really, although Mike Ellum, who we both worked mm. with, was a brilliant, because he understands economics and politics. Dave Ramsden, now Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, did all the work for the year on the euro for us. He was Chief Economic Advisor after me at the, the Treasury, also a great economist. I'm going to a little shout out, shout out for Claire Lombardelli, who Super. was my Principal Private Secretary, and she is now Chief Economist for the OECD in Paris. And I read is one of the candidates to be the next Deputy Governor of the Bank of England. And she was one of my co-teachers in our King's course on the Treasury since 1945. She's, uh, she's great. Very, she's great. But uh, I guess, you know, she's not a Nobel Prize winning published economist. I mean, I for me, Ken Rogoff was very influential, as people know, who followed that period of politics. You know, he did lots of works with someone called Carmen Reinhart on the effect of high debt levels on growth in economies. Very controversial. It was work. controversial because they people, got into a bit of trouble with it. They were accused of getting their research wrong. But I think their overall thesis has endured. And I know that Rogoff remains listened to to this day. We so, should come back to this at some point. Did they get the research wrong? Did you draw the wrong conclusions? Discuss. Uh, no and no. Okay, we'll discuss that. We've got time for one more question. And this is from Paul Wallace. Hi, Ed and George. It's Paul Wallace from Sydney, Australia. Really enjoying the podcasts. I was wondering what you thought the main reason was why the Conservatives don't make changes to the non-DOM rules, which I assume only benefit non-voters. Wouldn't it be better to make major changes this year and steal Labour's thunder? Well, non-DOMs can actually vote. So the the claim in the non- And they can also give donations to political parties, can't they? Yes. What they can't do is uh, sit in the House of Lords anymore. I guess I made my name as Shadow Chancellor saying that I would require non-DOMs to pay more money for this tax status, which means they don't have to pay tax on their foreign earnings because at some point in their future life, they are going to leave the country and um, return often to the country of their origin. I said, you know, that regime was too loose and... As uh, shadow chancellor, I said we should charge non-DOMs more and use the money to cut inheritance tax. And then as chancellor, I restricted the non-DOM regime so that uh, you couldn't claim it for the whole of your life. Uh, there was a 17-year limit. And you do want some regime to allow, for example, everyone from Filipino nurses to come and work in the NHS to American bankers to come for a couple of years into the city of London and not be tied into the British tax regime for all the properties they have or the earnings they have at home. So there are reasons why you do need some kind of flexible regime for people who come temporarily to Britain. Now, Labour are saying they're just going to get rid of the whole regime whilst acknowledging they'll have to find some way to address that problem. There's a very straightforward political question here for Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak. By the way, Rishi Sunak's you know, been in the firing line because his wife was a non-dom. It's this. Do you use this budget to basically steal Labour's clothes? Do you either abolish the non-dom regime, albeit replace it with something, or do you dramatically curtail it further than I have already done when I was Chancellor? And in the process, you basically take the money off the table that Labour's already spending 
on other things that they've made promises to. And then you put the Labour shadow chancellor in a really difficult position because obviously they'll Rachel Rees will say, oh, you've nicked my idea. And everyone will go, yeah, OK, fine. But are you still committed to the things you were going to spend the money on that you were going to raise from these non-doms? And that is absolutely classic politics. You know, you shut down your opponent's ideas by either stealing half of them or doing something that makes them no longer effective. And I have to say, sitting here, if I was the chancellor, I would definitely be looking to do something on the non-DOM regime that hopefully didn't kill the golden goose that lays the golden egg, you know, of having international visitors to Britain who invest in this country, but nevertheless takes money off the table and puts the ball back into Labour's court. Look, we've got a track record on this because you and I said the Tories should shoot Labour's fox and do this before the autumn statement of the Andrew Neil programme. Before we started the podcast, we said it before the, the budget last mm. year. We said it before the autumn statement the year before. We've been saying again and again they should do it because you've already done it once and you could go further. All Labour's promises around more operations or scanners or dentistry or the stuff they're saying around schools and breakfast clubs all relies upon getting that money. And if Jeremy Hunt was to take that money in this budget, it would make it much, much harder for Labour to have to find some alternative source of revenue to pay for these promises. It's hard for them to back off them, although I think they may have to. What I don't know is why they haven't done it. I mean, is it because Jeremy Hunt thinks the signal it would send around the world is a big mistake? Is it because the people who give money to the Conservative Party, who are non-DOMs, would then not make their donations. There must be a reason because if not, it's like it's obviously maybe they're just listening you to do. your advice, Ed. Because you said on the twenty-eight billion that the Tory attack came too soon and it's allowed Labour to get off the hook before the elections, you know, underway before the leaflets are printed. Maybe you would wait till the uh, sort of September or October budget-like statement we're expecting from Hunt before you shoot the uh, Labour fox. If you shoot the Labour fox too soon, they can uh, you know, get away with it. So do you think that they shot the Labour fox too soon on 28 billion? Well, I thought uh, you made a very good argument. I reflected on it afterwards. I mean, I think, to be honest, the Tories had to demonstrate they've got fight. And one thing that has clicked into gear is the Tory attack machine, which has been non-existent for some years and now is doing a pretty good job at forensically examining Labour policies, partly because people think Labour might win. So there's a lot more pressure on those policies. But I think your point, which was, did they go too soon? I don't know. I think they just had to demonstrate they've got some fight in them. They demonstrated that. But on the non-DOM regime, you might be tempted to wait just till you get much closer to the election. I mean, the thing I was saying is that they decided to ratchet up their campaign too early. I think doing something in a very, very late budget autumn statement. It would have to be, I'm telling you where they go for the election, after this budget, hard to have an autumn statement before I, next November. And that might be so No, late no, they're before. going to have one in September, Mike. But yeah, but that would be to change procedure and process. We decided in the podcast last time talking about Lindsay Hoyle breaking from procedure. Wow. Yeah. I, mean, and, and I think we concluded it worked for if, uh, Labour, so might, could make it work for the Tories. If I were Jeremy Hunt, I would do it in this budget. And we'll be talking about the budget in our weekly episode this Thursday. That's all for EMQs. As I said, back talking about budgets in a few days' time. Until then, please keep sending in your questions to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. See you Thursday. See you then. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.